0: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more that's seafoamworks.com to learn more hey i just sat down with the owners and operators of maui nui venison they're on a mission to balance axis deer populations on maui
1: Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. This is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal.
0: A proposal is now under consideration by the U.S. Department of the Interior that would prevent the hunting of moose and caribou in two areas, Game Management Unit 23 and 26A in Northwest Alaska. Anyone not meeting criteria as a subsistence hunter in those areas will not be able to hunt. Those areas are roughly 60 million acres in size, meaning that these federal public lands would be closed not just to out-of-state hunters, but also to any Alaska resident who is not a subsistence hunter. Here is one of the many catches you'll find when researching this topic. Subsistence is defined by the state of Alaska as customary and traditional uses of wild resources for various uses including food, shelter, fuel, clothing, tools, transportation, handicraft, sharing, barter, and customary trade. However, federal and state laws currently differ in who qualifies for participation in subsistence fisheries and hunts. Under federal law, rural Alaska residents qualify for subsistence harvesting. Since 1989, All Alaska residents have qualified under state law. That's uh, taken from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game website. Now, from the BLM website, the statement is, quote, the customary and traditional uses by rural Alaska residents of wild renewable resources for direct personal or family consumption as food, shelter, fuel, clothing, tools, or transportation. Basically the same statement as the state of Alaska, but it slides rural in there. Long way of saying, same, but different. Now that's what I call fine print. Caribou numbers in this area are well inside a healthy range, and non-subsistence hunting makes up just two and a half percent of the total annual harvest, which begs the question, what is the motivation behind the closure, biology or social science? Alaska Fishing Game is fighting in court against a similar special action denying access to non subsistence hunters in another part of the state, Game Management Unit 13, which we've already covered on an earlier episode. The Northwest Arctic Subsistence Regional Advisory Council making this proposal cites air travel to and from the area as a major disruptor of the caribou migration. If they can shut it down, they'll limit the primarily non-resident or traveling resident hunters from flying in, and the migration will continue down faster to the subsistence hunters and make for easy pickings. That's the theory, anyway. But biologists with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game don't agree that hunter transportation services are to blame. Even still, several areas within Units 23 and 26A have been reserved only for subsistence hunters. Much of this beef comes down to geographical resentments. We can all relate to the feeling that outsiders are ruining our spot, whether it's other hunters turning up in that honey hole or hipsters invading our favorite bar. I'm not trying to make light of this situation, and the history of indigenous people in this area makes resentment easy to understand. And then there's about a dozen other layers of resentment we could get into, but the bottom line is this. The North American model of conservation isn't supposed to run on resentment. It's supposed to run on biology, science, and dollars. Biologists need to make the decisions about how many animals can be taken. Locals, especially those close to and dependent on a resource, should absolutely be considered first when tag and opportunity allotments are decided. And non-locals, who spend on licenses, tags, transportation, gear, and the rest that provide funds to manage these animals and their habitat, should stay in the game until a situation arises that says there is not enough. And this situation is not that. We're just in a sticky wicket. Sticky wicket? Very few of the people listening to this will ever be able to fly up to Alaska and hunt caribou and moose. But, right now, we daydream occasionally that we'll get there. You know, one of these days. So, we're more invested in making sure those animals are still there for a long time. If this proposal goes through, on the heels of Game Management Unit 13's closure to non-subsistence hunters on federal lands, a disturbing trend and a bad precedent will be set, and we could potentially see other areas closed for social reasons, not biological reasons. This episode of the Week in Review will air after the public comment period for the proposal is officially closed. Sorry about that. I like to try to keep it weekly, but I've got to get out and turkey hunt, you know? However, the Department of the Interior won't make its decision for a few more weeks, so you still have time to weigh in if this is the first time you're hearing it. Sam Lundgren wrote a fantastic deep dive on this issue, head over to the MeatEater website, not only to read that piece, but also to find the link that will take you to where you can comment on special action request, WSA 21-01 for Units 23 and 26A. If those forms have been closed by the time you hear this, don't give up. This is an important issue. Go to Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and submit a letter on this issue through their handy-dandy web form. In addition, I would call the Department of Interior's Acting Policy Coordinator, Robin Levine, or write to the Acting Coordinator at robin, R O B B I N, underscore Levine, L I V I N E, at fws.gov. That's an intro call to action for you. This week, we've got alligator roundup, listener emails, whales, and so much more, but first I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is brought to you by Steel Power Equipment, maker of the world's finest chainsaws. Whether you're earning a living in the woods or just brownie points in the backyard, the awesome people at Steel have something for you. Go to www.steelusa.com and find a dealer near you. Just back from visiting my good buddy Johnny Allred with the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Foundation out there in Tennessee. We chase turkeys with Danielle Pruitt and Chef Michael Hunter. You should follow Danielle and Mike on Instagram and prepare to drool. Also, if you are in the state of Tennessee and have a few bucks to spare for wildlife and conservation, Tennessee Wildlife Resource Foundation is as efficient of a nonprofit as you will find. 94% of every dollar donated goes into the program, not toward administrative costs. So if you're interested in supporting wildlife and keeping it local, check out Tennessee Wildlife Resource Foundation. On our way home from Tennessee, we stopped and spoke with one of the business owners that supports TWRF, Olive Sinclair Chocolate Company on Fatherland Street in Nashville, Tennessee. Duck fat caramels. I do not like sweets, but duck fat caramels I can get behind. They don't stick to your teeth. And the owner there, uh, Scott, is a fun fella to talk to. As for the turkey woods, they were great. We picked morels, wild garlic, lots of ticks, and picked up three turkeys in three days. Can't ask for much more. I picked up my bird by utilizing a classic creek bed sneak maneuver after he hung up at about 80 yards. Instead of coming directly into Michael and I set up like the hens that had pitched out of the roost tree above us, He came in at a sneaky 90-degree angle, which gave him a perfect look at two camo-clad tree stumps with shotgun silhouettes pointed ominously toward two hen turkeys, one of them real, the other the Dave Smith variety. When he turned his back, I slid into the creek and got back within calling distance and, as luck would have it, in between him and some toms he was wanting to group back up with. I started calling to the toms on the ridge above and ignoring his gobbles. Eventually, even though he knew better, he came sliding in, silent, to find that hen that wasn't talking to him, but was talking to the other boys. And that, my friends, was all she wrote. The last mistake he ever made. seven nine shot tss wicked on those birds moving on to listener emails bull kelp another great bull kelp and boozing combo is using the stipe to make an organic and biodegradable beer bong that pairs perfectly with mexican beers since it's nice and naturally salty fresh kelp is obviously best Of all the things I've learned over the years commercial fishing, this is one I thought I'd never be prompted to share. We all learned something here today. Once it hits your lips, it's so good! Next up, bear measurements. My reference to Boone and Crockett measure length is nose to occiput, which is the back of skull, and width is cheek to cheek, which are the temporal bones. And I screwed that up and called it the occipital bone, which uh, the occiput would be the tip of the back of the head. So when you measure a bear under the Boone Crockett system, you run from the tip of the nose to the tip of the occiput, or the back of the head, and from the outermost points on the cheekbones, which would be the temporal bones. That one came in courtesy of the sweary Angler on Instagram. She says she's a science medical nerd who has a pain in her occiput, today from work. Pain says you can't. Advil says you can. Lastly, from Trey. In your latest episode of Cal's Week in Review, you gave a quick plug for Clay Newcomb's Bear Grease podcast. In describing the inaugural episode, you said it was about mountain lions east of the Mississippi. As a lifelong resident of Arkansas, and someone in possession of various mapping services, from Onyx to my grandfather's old Rand McNally Atlas, I would like to point out that Arkansas is most definitely west of the Mississippi River. Thank you, Trey. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you, use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com/hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, You know, regularly. People everywhere rely on Seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
1: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
0: Next up, we got an American alligator roundup. A 12-foot-long, 445-pound American alligator was just taken during a hunt on private land along the Edisto River in South Carolina. The man who killed the gator wanted the meat head, and hide, which are all common trophy parts of a gator, but the stomach contents turned out to be of trophy status as well. Inside the gator's stomach was a spark plug, a bullet casing, lots of turtle shells, a few bobcat claws, and five tags from dog collars. The owners of Cordry's Butcher Shop in Ravenel, South Carolina, found a few tags that were still legible, with one number that still worked. The previous owner of the dog tags confirmed that he had lost some dogs while hunting the same area 24 years prior. What that gator wouldn't have given for some psyllium husk or Metamucil, huh? A 24-year gut ache may be a good reason to second-guess eating deer hunting dogs. While looking at this, I came across a few interesting gator facts for you. Alligator nests are warmed through the decay of vegetation. The microbial breakdown of organic material creates friction, which produces heat. In this case, swamp grasses, layered on and in between mud layers that seal the eggs from the outside world, break down and produce heat. If anyone listening has a compost pile, you know exactly what I'm talking about, which is thermal decomposition. The temperature of the nest not only determines how many nestlings hatch, but what sex they will be when they do. Low temps and high temps produce female alligators, whereas the median temps, between 31.5 and 35 degrees Celsius, produce males. So, you could say, or come to the conclusion, rather, that males are more even-tempered, while the females, well, they can be both hot and cold. And I'm just talking alligators, to be clear. Liar! Primary predators of alligators are alligators. They are cannibalistic and territorial. As juveniles, they are targets of wading birds, snapping turtles, raccoons, otters, and fish. If you are one of the select few bass fishermen that own a baby gator swim bait, you know what I'm talking about. As eggs, the mother gator can crush them in the nest. Raccoons will dig them up, as will hogs, otters, and bears in some states. Florida and possibly Georgia at this point also have the Argentine tegu lizard an egg-eating and digging invasive species to contend with. The American alligator was listed on the Endangered Species Act of 1973, despite years of attempted state regulation including the implementation of a license and tag system and the flat-out closing of alligator hunting in South Carolina 10 years prior in 1963. According to the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, federal regulation through the Lacey Act increased penalties for the possession, sale, and transportation of American alligator parts, and that is likely what helped restore this species. After years on the ESA, the gator was downlisted to threatened in 1987, and South Carolina's first hunting season returned to the state in 1995, 32 years after its closure. Alligators are currently present from Texas East, along the Gulf Coast, up the Mississippi River, into Arkansas and Oklahoma, around the tip of Florida, and north to southern North Carolina, which is the only Gulf state where gators are present without a hunting season. Oklahoma just recently confirmed nesting of American alligators in that state. There is no hunting season there, but they do have a state-record alligator gar, which also has big teeth. Scaled armor, can breathe air, lives in much of the same habitat, and has been around unchanged for much of the same time. That record gar is 254 pounds, 12 ounces, over 8 feet in length, and a girth of 44 inches. That is a big old dinosaur fish. And by old, I mean at least 100 million years as a species which may make it one of our better examples of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There are reports from the state of North Carolina of 11-foot gators crossing roads and, of course, snatching dogs from their owners' leashes in golf course housing developments. Georgia, where there is an alligator season, reports a state-record gator of 14 feet 1 and three-quarter inches and 700 pounds. That gator came out of Lake Eufaula which is famous for a number of reasons, but I know it because of that great James McMurtry song, Choctaw Bingo. James, if you're listening, and I know you are, sorry to hear about your pops. For someone not knowing him, all I can say is Lonesome Dove and Cadillac Jack are classics. Yeah, I'm thought of as a, a writer, but although I've been denouncing cowboys and calling them fascists and uh, doing everything I can to get away from being a writer about the cowboy, but somehow it draws me back because it's such a Central American image, a Central American Western type. You've got you to deal with the cowboy one way or another. Florida has a separate category for weight and overall length, which, in my opinion, is an attempt to let more people be a winner. Isn't that nice? Of course, splitting categories like that does create that coveted spot of overall champ for some hunter, too. The Florida length record is a 14 foot, 3.5 inch male from Brevard County. The weight record is from Orange Lake at 13 feet, 10.5 inches, but 1,043 pounds. The Alabama record was set in 2015 and came out of the Alabama River with a monstrous 15-foot-long 1,011-pound gator caught in a 16-foot boat, by the way. Mississippi claims a 14-foot, one-and-a-quarter-inch, inch 766-pound gator with a tail girth measurement of 43 inches, which is thick. The Arkansas state-record gator was just claimed in the 2020 season that gator came out of Marissach Lake, outside of Arkansas Post-Arkansas. Now, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you about Arkansas Post-Arkansas. I mean, you know it was the first European settlement in the lower Mississippi Valley, founded in 1686, and was the Arkansas Territory's capital before folks were even talking about Little Rock. Anyway. This big gator was taken with one of only 38 public hunting permits and weighed in at 800 pounds while measuring 13 feet 11 half inches, which is nice, but not quite a 14-footer, is it? The longest alligator on record, the overall title holder, was recorded somewhat unofficially in Louisiana. That gator measured 19 feet 2 inches long and had an estimated weight of over 2,000 pounds. This was, however, reported in 1890, and it's possible that this estimate grew over time. Louisiana's second largest, or modern-day gator, is 13 feet 4 inches, 760 pounds. Finally, Texas claims a 14-foot, 900-pound gator taken in 2016. I'm telling you all of this because, well, it's awesome knowledge. I love knowing that there are reptiles growing somewhere in the southeast that breach 1,000 pounds. People, including myself, throw the word dinosaur around a lot. The last dinosaurs probably roamed the earth about 66 million years ago. The American alligator, or alligator mississippiensis, when compared to fossils of alligators from 5 to 12 million years ago, is basically the same and really old but misses the age of dinosaurs, unlike our friend the alligator gar. Unlike a lot of other species, we have lots of fossils to compare modern-day bones to. That's due to the fact that alligators lose a lot of teeth. They're a polyphiodont, which is what we would call a $10 word. But it just means their teeth grow, fall out, and are continually replaced. Depending on what the gator is up to, they can produce and rotate through hundreds, even thousands of teeth in a good long lifetime. While, on its average day, that old gator may have as many as 80 teeth in its mouth. They are also homodonts, which means, unlike us, their teeth are all basically the same. All grabbers. Conical-shaped teeth. No grinders. These fossils are very similar to older alligators that did go back further than 12 million years ago, such as the recently discovered Dinosuchus schwimmery.
1: We were on the break!
0: <laughs> which, of course, came out of similar fossils found in Alabama and Mississippi. Similar, that is, but different in many ways, especially scale. If you want to call a gator a dinosaur... You're talking about a gator with teeth the size of bananas and an overall length of 33 feet or more. The modern American alligator may sport a tooth that goes as long as 4 inches in length for reference. That, my friends, is the gator that tussled with the dinosaurs and would unfortunately make those modern state records seem uh, undersized. The other fun thing to think about is this dino gator swam right here in Montana and New Jersey, which is kind of like that old joke. Where does a 33-foot gator swim? Wherever it pleases. That's been your American alligator roundup. Hard to find a good gator roundup anywhere other than Cal's Week in Review. Moving on, their surveillance side effects desk. Scientists are actively monitoring a gray whale off the coast of Vancouver, Canada, who has developed an infection at the site of a satellite monitoring tag it was stuck with several months ago. To tag a gray whale, you pull up beside the 40-foot-long 30-ton behemoth and shoot it with a dart containing a tracker about the size of a lightsaber. Or, you know, let's call it your standard framing hammer handle. With the vast majority of whale tags, they stay embedded and unnoticed by the whale for years. In this case, though, the state of the skin infection and the fact that the whale was coughing up mucus concerned scientists enough that they darted the whale again, this time with antibiotics, which will likely be the next step in COVID vaccine delivery. Although this particular tag is causing a problem, The data we get from tagging all kinds of animals is absolutely priceless. There are several species who wouldn't have survived without the information scientists have collected from monitoring devices. Grizzly bears would arguably be a great example. But nothing is perfect. And, in biology, just as in particle physics, every time you study something, you risk changing the thing you're studying. Female Australian zebra finches, for example, were shown to be less responsive to the mating dances of male finches who had been fitted with colorful tags. Those are some fashion-conscious lady finches, and they ruined a great study. But back to the gray whale off the coast of Canada. The infection around the tag and the mucus production are expected to clear up soon, but the animal will remain under observation for the next several weeks, In the meantime, Fisherman's Friend is working on a cherry cough drop the size of a snowmobile. Moving on. Congratulations to Wolfgang Kratzenberg of Verona, Kentucky. First, for having a great name. And second, for recently catching the Kentucky state record Sawguy. The Sawguy is a hybrid of a sauger and a walleye two closely related but distinct species of freshwater fish native to Canada and the northern U.S. While walleye typically stick to lakes, sauger prefer rivers and streams, and in recent decades, habitat disruption and rising water temperatures have been hard on both. But the hybrid of the two has proven hardier than either original fish. Sauguy tolerates warmer water better and their eggs grow faster. So, Kentucky has been hatching and stocking lakes with saugeye since 2013. We've often talked about how tough it can be to battle invasive hybrids. Milfoil, tiger salamanders, Burmese and Indian python mixes, even invasive calorie pear trees. When two species are able to team up and use the most effective attributes of each other, survival rates go up. In the case of the saugeye, this combo creates a fish that is just fantastic to go after. According to the Kentucky Fish and Game press release, Wolfgang and his son Jeffrey put in a heroic struggle to get this whopper in the boat, which was only overshadowed by their amount of effort to get the fish officially weighed. The duo called 10 different stores before finally finding a Costco willing to move their trade-certified scale out to the parking lot to record the official weight of 9 pounds 5 ounces, 8.8 ounces better than the previous record. So here's a hat tip to the Katzenbergs for a job well done, and also for what I imagine were some extremely tasty fried fillets. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening, As per usual, get a hold of me and tell me what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks, Sent right to your door. Visit Venison dot com. That's M A U I N U I Venison dot com, and use promo code CAL for twenty percent off your first order.